want to talk to you this morning, um, just for the next 30 minutes or so, and then we're going to do some more singing, and we're going to take communion. I'll explain to you what that's about later. I want to talk to you for the next 30 minutes or so um, about a word that I can't get out of my head, and um, it's the word shift. And I'd like you to say that word with me and be really careful how you say it. Let's say the word shift. Is that right? Shift. And this word shift, and I checked that it was spelt right a couple of times before we put the picture up, is such an important word because shift means, the, the dictionary says, to change position, direction, place or form. We use it when we talk about changing gears, don't we? A gear shift, when we go from one gear to another. I used to do geology at school and at college and, and what they talk about it, a seismic shift when two tectonic plates collide and, and whole continents can change, mountains appear you know, because of such a massive shift. And if you think, actually, you're talking about science and you're meant to be a Christian leader, you're talking about science. If you, if, let me get this clear for you. If you're not a Christian, you probably think that we're all down on science. If we've ever told you or we've ever implied that we're against science, I'm sorry that we've done that because we shouldn't have. Because we as believers believe science is part of what God's created and given us. And whenever science discovers anything, and if you're a Christian this morning, this might help you. Whenever science discovers anything, you don't need to be freaked out. You just need to say, well, that's how God did it. Because science tells us how things happen, but faith, theology, Christianity tells us why it happens and who is behind it all. So we're not afraid of science in this church, okay? It, and we don't need to be. And if you're uh, uh, kind of seeking or you're not a Christian and you thought, I can't be scientific and a Christian, you really can. They're like two sides of a coin. And whenever you see science discovering something, telling us how something happened, all we need to say is that's how God did it. That's amazing. But going back to the word shift, I believe that we're living in a time of unprecedented shift in the world globally right now, I believe that the history books will look back at this period of time and say, that period of time, like the Industrial Revolution, like the Reformation in the 1500s, like the modern era that began in the 20th century, I believe that they're going to look back at this period of time and say, that was unbelievably a period of shift, unprecedented shift. So much has changed. How many of you um, are on Facebook? How many of you are on Twitter? Really interesting. This week, I was uh, at at Ealing Bible Conference and George Verwer was speaking. George Verwer is an amazing guy, so inspirational, 75 years of age, founded Operation Mobilization, which is a ministry we know very well. It's a Christian organization worldwide. There's a base at the back. There's many people in this room who are part of that. And George Verwer was talking about technology and how the world is changing. And he talked about YouTube and Twitter and Facebook. And he said this, he said, you know, they're going to merge all three. YouTube, Twitter and Facebook. It's going to be called You Twit Face, which, which was actually funnier when he said it. I just thought it was really funny. But the world has shifted unbelievably in this last 10 years. When you think that YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and all of that technology, which now shapes much of how we do life in, in, in the world, it really does. Many of you, not, you might not be into it, but it shapes a lot of how a lot of people do life. It wasn't around over t- just over 10 years ago. The world is changing in a rapid way, not just with technology, but, but politically, sociologically, economically, in terms of the family and what we, what we understand by family. It's massive, a massive shift that we're in as a world. And as I've been traveling and reading quite a lot about culture and about church globally over these last six weeks, I'm really hit again by how much the church is affected by all of this as well. 
You know, they say, sociologists say that we're in the dawn of what they call the seventh age for the church now. And I haven't got time to talk about all that. That this is a completely new period for us as the church worldwide. And in the Western world especially, there's a massive shift with pluralism and secularism and individualization and privatization. And, and there's so many things that are happening. And the USA, when I was in the States and in the Bible Belt area of the States, they were, many of them were talking uh, with us and talking um, in some of the conferences we were at about how nervously they are looking at Europe. And recognizing that some of the secularization, some of the things that are happening in Europe are starting to happen in their culture as well. And especially in the Bible area of America where so much is as a church going culture, they're seeing some shifts and some changes in that. There's a bit of research done called the rise of the nuns, not the nuns, but the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And that basically talks about, if you've ever filled in a survey where it asks for your religious affiliation, and there are lots of different options, and then there'll be a box where you can tick none. You have no religious affiliation. In 1955, 1% of Americans tick no. Tick none. We have no religious affiliation. By 2005, that had risen to 16%. And in under 30s, it's 30%. So these guys are looking at Europe and looking at what's happened with our church going kind of, kind of dynamics. And they're getting nervous about that and seeing some of the shifts that are going on in, uh, in, in the church. And I think if you think over the last six months with the, the marriage redefinition and with the whole debate around sexuality and morality and the place of faith in the workplace and in the media, we're in a massive time of shift. Would you agree? This is a huge time of shift. We're almost in a post-Christian world right now. And into that world comes a new Archbishop of Canterbury who we need to pray for and a new Pope who we need to pray for. Massive period in the world. And I believe that this church, Zion, we also need to engage with this word shift. We need to remember that we're part of this world and we're part of this church. And we need to make changes in order to engage with a shifting world. And if you want to know what some of those changes are, we're going to begin that conversation at the vision night. And if you're a part of this church or you're checking us out, I really want to encourage you to put it in your diary and be there. You know, on Tuesday, 23rd of April, or Wednesday, the 24th of April, two nights, the same thing. So you can choose either one you come to at 7.30. We're going to give you some feedback on the building project and where we're at with that. And that's exciting. Talk to you about other things that are happening in the church. But really start to think about the future and the shift that we believe God is calling us and wanting us to make. But today, I want to talk to you about the biggest shift that has ever happened and will ever happen. And uh, you might be surprised by this, but this is so huge that if you don't get this, none of the rest of the stuff that I've just said will make any difference to you at all. It doesn't matter how the world's shifting. You've got to understand that the biggest shift that's ever happened has already happened and there'll never be a shift like this again. This is the biggest shift of all. And before I tell you what that is and talk to you about it, there's something else you need to know. You know, nowadays, people don't ask the question, is it true? I don't know if you've ever talked to someone who's not a Christian uh, and, and you've talked about your faith if you're, if you're a Christian this morning. And you know, a lot of people, they're not really interested, is it true? They're not asking that question. Because actually now, truth is subjective, personal and relative. And that's a massive shift as well. So in other words, truth is whatever you want it to be. So if you think it's true for you, that's great. If you think the Bible's true, that's great. Because over here, I know this person, he has a different truth. And they have a book as well and they think that's true. And that may be true for them and that's great, but it's not true for me. So people aren't asking the question, is it true? People, and so when you say, well, I'm a Christian, you see, see, people are not really, okay, that's great. You see, people aren't asking, is it true? People are now asking, so what? That's the question they're asking. So you're a Christian, so what? 
Well, 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 I'm a Christian because Jesus died for me. Well, so what? Well, it says it in the Bible. And? And this is really important because when I tell you the biggest shift ever, the question isn't really, is it true? Although it is, okay? The question is, so what? And if you're going to answer this question in our shifting world, you don't only need to know that it's true. You need to know, so what? You need to know why this is the biggest shift of all time. And can I tell you what it is this morning? The biggest shift that has ever happened, will ever happen, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I know we celebrated it last weekend at Easter, but can I tell you, it's still as true this week as it was last Sunday. You know that, don't you? And I want to talk to you this morning about the resurrection because if we don't get this shift, if we don't understand this shift, we'll never make an impact in our shifting world. Because of what God did by raising Jesus from the dead, and you might say, how on earth is that true? You know, and you may be scientific and you may be asking the true question this morning. There's, I'll talk about that in a moment. But you may be asking the so what question. So even if it was true, so what? And you may be a Christian this morning and you think, I know it's true, but you need to know why. You need to know why it is so important. So if you've got a Bible, I'd like you to turn to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 12 to 20. And this, this is a bit in the Bible. So it's called 1 Corinthians because it's a letter that was written by Paul to these people at Corinth. So this is early believers and early church. And it's the first that was written. So it's called 1 Corinthians and there's a 2 Corinthians as well. And 1 Corinthians 15 verse 12 and it says this. And this, some of this stuff is, is, is quite difficult to get your head around but just can't I'll hopefully I'll try and explain it for you but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised and if Christ has not been raised our preaching is useless and so is your faith more than that we are then found to be false witnesses about God but we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead you see when Jesus was risen from the dead over a period of 40 years, he appeared to over 500 different people. That's recorded in historical fact. And some people who, who, who believe the resurrection wasn't true, they say, oh, they hallucinated. You know, because they were so like, fixated with Jesus. He was their guru and their leader. That, that, that When he died, they were so heartbroken and, and grief-stricken that they imagined they saw him. Any doctor, any doctor will tell you that is impossible. You do not have hallucinations over 500 people over a 40-day period in different geographical settings. That is impossible. And so what Paul is saying is that some people in that early church were saying, oh, I don't think there is the resurrection. Or the resurrection isn't that important. And he's saying it really is important. Then he says this, But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And listen to this. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And I'll talk about that word in a minute. Then those who also, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And if only for this life we have hope in Christ. In other words, if our faith is only about this life and there's no resurrection, then we are of all people most to be pitied. And listen to this great verse. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. As we move beyond Easter now, and as we go to live bigger, bolder, and braver lives, and can I say, I didn't realize fully why God gave me those three words at the start of this year, but now I do. And what I want to talk to you about as a church, what I want to talk to the elders and staff about and us about together, I now know why God said at the start of the year you need to be bigger and bolder and braver. But as we enter into our world, our shifting world, and we want to be followers of God and we want to make an impact, we need to understand why the resurrection is so important. It is true, but that's not the only question we need to answer. So what? 
If it is true, so what? What difference should it make to our lives? And I want to give you three things. There's loads. Number one, because he lives, we can live with a new identity. How many know that's good news? See, the Bible says, and Paul talks about it there, about sin. And that word sin is a really old word. And I know we're down on that word. But it literally means missing the mark. We've all done it. In other words, here's God, here's us. Whatever we do or think or feel or say, we're always going to miss the mark. And the Bible calls that sin and it separates us from God. But you know, in the New Testament, the Bible says that when you become a Christian, you're not called a sinner any longer. You're called a saint. You're given a new identity. And you're not Saint Teresa, all right, or that kind of thing, Mother Teresa. I'm not saying that. But you, you go, you move from that identity to a new identity. And you're free and you're forgiven. And that's fantastic. Because he lives, we can live with a new identity. And Jesus kind of hinted at this when he was around because he did some amazing things in interactions with people. All the time hinting to what he was about to do um, you know, in the time that we, that we call Easter. And so he, he, he sees this woman who the Bible says was caught in the act of adultery. That's pretty graphic because you know what's going on. And they drag her out into the, into the middle of the town, the village. And under Jewish law, they were going to stone her to death. And Jesus comes along and says, listen, if, and he writes some stuff on, this, on the ground. Then he says, if any of you, if, if you've never messed up, then go, go ahead. But if you've ever messed up, don't throw a rock. And all the guys think, oh, I have messed up. And they throw the rocks down. And there's only her and him left. And Jesus then says, I don't condemn you either. But then he says, you're forgiven. Don't keep doing wrong stuff. You're forgiven. Then on another day, there's a guy who's paralyzed and his four friends have him on a stretcher and they carry him to Jesus because they heard that this Jesus guy can heal people physically as well as emotionally and spiritually. And they can't get to him because he's speaking in a house and it's all crowded. So they go up on the roof and they punch a hole in the roof and they drop him down and he sees what's happening. He looks at the faith of these four friends and he says, hey, get up and walk. Your sins are forgiven. And then he goes into another house where there's religious people and they're trying to catch him out. And then there's this woman who the Bible implies was probably a prostitute and she's in the house as well and she sees Jesus and she pours perfume over his feet and and kind of worships him, recognising that he's God. And and the religious people get all angsty about it like religious people do because religious people often don't like those kind of people anywhere near God, which is interesting. And Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. All of that is pointing and alluding to what's going to happen when he's on the cross and he cries out, it is finished. And what Jesus did at the cross was he made the way possible for you and I to have a new identity. Isn't that good news? Now here's the thing. He did it at the cross. What has the resurrection got to do with it all? I want to show you something. So, I want you to imagine this is representing Jesus. This is representing me or you or us together. Now, you don't know what this is. This is a ledger. Anyone ever heard of a ledger? Oh, this is really old school. Derek still uses these. These are all our petty cash ledgers uh, from the church office, so I need to look after these, don't I? But basically, a ledger is where we keep accounts. And so we write in a ledger of all the things that we need to keep an account of. And I want you to imagine if your life, if this represents my life, is like a ledger... Then inside is written in here everything that I've ever done, thought or said. That's a scary thought for us, isn't it? And can you imagine that most of that, a lot of that stuff, is going to be stuff that the Bible calls sin, which will separate me from God. And it's like there's all this stuff written in this account, in my account, that separates me from God. And there's this massive gap. And if you imagine that this is all of the stuff, 
in all of the people on all of the planet, all of their ledgers, this stuff can never make it across to here because of this gap. And what we try and do is we try and get across the gap to God by being good and by being kind and by helping old people across the road and not leaving them in the middle. And we do all this kind of stuff and we'll never ever fill the gap. But the Bible has an amazing verse in 2 Corinthians 5.21 and I'll say it from the message. It says, God put the wrong on him who never did anything wrong so we could be put right with God. God put the wrong on him who never did any wrong so we could be put right with God. What God did on the cross was he shifted everything that was in our account onto Jesus. Isn't that amazing? So all of the stuff... All of the guilt, all of the shame, all the wrong stuff, all the mistakes, all of the failures, all the mess ups, all the secret sins that nobody knows about, all the stuff that people know about, all the time we've messed it up with our words, with our thoughts, with our deeds, God has shifted it onto Jesus. Isn't that good? Now here's what happens. The enemy, and when I say the enemy, who are you talking about? I'm talking about the devil. And you might say, you don't believe in the devil, do you? Jesus believed in the devil. And Jesus was the guy that rose from the dead, so I'm going with him. So I do. And what happens is that the devil wants to take all this stuff and he wants to keep moving it back onto us. How many of you know what I'm talking about? And so many times as Christians we think, well, he's done it on the cross. He's done it on the cross and he's shifted it. But so often the enemy puts it back and we're living with it. Why is that? Let me tell you why that is. Let me, let me say this to you. You see, what happened on the cross was God paid for it. What happened at the resurrection was there's the receipt. It's a little bit like if the resurrection hadn't happened, you wouldn't really know whether it was effective or not. But because he shifted everything onto Jesus and because Jesus died and Jesus rose again and the ultimate thing that sin does is it separates us from God ultimately with death. Jesus conquered death so he showed that by what he did by raising from the dead, actually what he did on the cross was effective and it worked. The cross was the payment, the resurrection was the receipt. And it gets better. Because that verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, when you read it from the NIV, it says this, God made him who had no sin. So if you can imagine all of the ledgers in Jesus' life, there's nothing wrong in it. It's all fantastic. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God then moves what's in Jesus' account to us. Isn't that amazing? So God takes all of the junk and puts it onto Jesus and he takes all the good stuff from Jesus and he puts it onto us. I think God's amazing. And because of that, we can live with a new identity. I don't know if any of you have ever been given a gift card. Anyone ever been given a gift card? This is a gift card I found in my drawer this morning. And uh, here's the interesting thing about a gift card. Shops know uh, that if they do these gift cards, you go in and you buy one and you part with your 20 quid or your 50 quid and you give it to someone else. And they know that there are loads and loads of unredeemed gift cards lying around the houses. Isn't that true? I can guarantee you will all go back today and you'll look through your drawers for some gift cards that haven't been used. How many of you know that you've, you've had a gift card that you've never used? What is the point of having a gift card that's been paid for if you're never going to use the gift? And I want to say that to you this morning because actually what God did by raising Jesus from the dead is he gave you the gift, but we need to step into it. We need to get the gift. And it may be this morning that you're stuck somehow and that you need that shift again. You need that realisation that God has put everything onto Jesus and he rose him again from the dead and now you can receive that gift. And you can live with a new identity right now. Isn't that good news? The second thing I want to say, because he lives, 
we can live with a new sense of purpose and mission. If you've got a Bible, I want to turn to Acts chapter 1 with me, please. Now, this was written, Acts, Acts, the book of Luke and the book of Acts were both written by a guy called Luke. And he was a doctor, so he was a scientist, and he was a historian. So don't ever think that Christians are not scientific and are not analytical, because this guy really was. And he wrote the book of Acts. And it says this, and this is an amazing story, right at the beginning of the book of Acts. In my former book, he said, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was sitting with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. They gathered around him and they asked him this question, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What they're asking is what's going to happen at the end of time and what's going to happen with Israel and are you going to come again and all the whole second coming end time stuff. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. I want to make a statement here. Jesus had no interest in speculation about the end times. Jesus had no interest in speculation about when he was going to come back to earth. Clearly from scripture, time and time again, Jesus said, do you know what guys, I don't even know that. Only God the Father knows it. I don't know it. I don't need to know it. You don't need to know it. So can I please encourage and urge you, please. It's only Christians that seem obsessed with this kind of stuff and some very other people out there who are very fearful about the whole world. Jesus had no interest in speculation about the end times. He said there's something else far more important for you to think about. And then he says, because when you go to Jerusalem, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses. This is far more important than speculation about the end times. You'll be more witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then this is, this is crazy. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. So, so, so you just imagine the scene. So they were staring up in the sky when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Now, I want to illustrate that for you. I didn't do this at the nine, but I'm going to do it now. So these guys and girls were probably in their late teens and early 20s. So I'd like about six people. Okay, so if I, now I'm going to get guys and girls and I need to get them emotionally the same age. So a 17-year-old girl and a 30-year-old guy. We've got this about him. <laughs> Joking. So some of our young adults, okay, who are before 24, I want you to come out and just stand in front of you. Paul, just a few of you. Becky. Any, any others? Come on, just quickly, quickly. Thank you, Alex. Rach, you can be 22. Come on, you can pretend. Da- down here, down here is fine. I need another girl. Another, another young, I need another young girl. That sounds terrible. And any of those Gemma, you'll do, you're looking intense. So I want you to imagine, this is the scene, okay? This is the scene that Jesus has gone. Now, Jesus was really clear all the way through his life that there was a shift coming. And he said, I'm going to be with you guys and I'm going to spend time with you guys, but I'm going to go. And when I go, it's better for you that I go because I'm going to go and I'm going to leave the Holy Spirit and then the mission's really going to kick in. And the mission is that you're going to bring the kingdom of God to earth. And that's what you're going to do. And he says that you're going to do it in Jerusalem 
which is where you live. You do it in Judea, which is part of your region. You do it in Samaria. Oh, that's a massive shift because Jews hated Samaritans. But he says, you're going to do that because the gospel knows no boundaries. You're going to go to the places and the people that you really don't like because that's what the gospel's all about. And you're going to go to the ends of the earth. And so just kind of get in a little kind of, just around a bit. And then basically, I want you just to stare up in the sky and look vacant. Shouldn't be difficult. There you go. <laughs> just stare up and look in the sky. Now, while that picture's in your mind, how crazy is this? That Jesus has said, this is what you're going to do. He goes and they stay staring up into the sky. And these two men dressed in white linen, which we won't go that far, come along and basically wake them up and say, guys, what are you doing staring into the sky? And I just wonder, and I don't want to mess around with the word of God and take it out of context and all that, but I just wonder whether there could be some truth in this. That how many of us as believers spend our whole life living in the power of the resurrection, when, but actually what we do is we end up staring at the sky. And when God says, I've given you the resurrection, you're risen from the dead, the Holy Spirit is in you. Why? So you can stare up at the sky aimlessly? No, so that you can go and make a difference and change the world. And I want to say to you guys, that's our, that's our mandate. We want to love God, we want to love each other, but we want to change the world. And I've been to so many churches over this last, this last six weeks and I walk in now and I walk in with a different eyes and I'm saying, is this church wanting to change the world? Does this church care that there's people in here who don't know God? And you can tell after five or six minutes whether it does or not. And they're staring at the sky. And what could that mean? Now, I, I think what it could mean for some of you as Christians is that you're bored. You're just staring vacantly up at the sky. Instead of engaging with the mission, you're bored. You've got fat and lazy and apathetic in your Christian faith. And you're just bored. For some of us, it could mean that we spend most of our time staring at screens rather than engaging with the mission of the world. And I love the technology, I love Facebook and Twitter and all that, but if we spend our lives staring at the screen when there's a world that's going to hell, then we're in a bad place. Perhaps it's because you're just kind of paralysed and you're just speculating and you're not quite sure what God has done for you, so you're staring up at the sky. But because he lives, we can live with a new sense of mission and purpose. And even this morning, could it be that God could wake some of us up and snap us out of that stare in the sky so that we go back to our places wherever he's called us and we make a difference and we change the world. Amen. Third thing I want to say, and this is the final thing, because he lives, we can live with a new hope. We can live with a new hope because he lives. You know, there's a, there's a great verse in the book of 1 Peter written by Peter and um, in a few weeks' time, Dan and myself are going to be doing a series looking at this beautiful letter in, in, the, in, the, in the New Testament uh, called 1 Peter. It's called Only the Brave is the series. But right at the beginning of, of, the verse, of, the, of chapter 1, in verse 3, there's this fantastic verse. It says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us birth into a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, because he lives... We can live with a new hope. So I don't know what it is that you're facing. But whatever it is you're facing, because he lives, you can face it with a new hope. The nine o'clock service, I came in and somebody came to me and said, I've been at the doctor and I've got cancer. Found it this week and it's inoperable. And I shook his hand and looked at him. And I know from looking in his eyes that he's looking at it with hope because he lives. And because he lives, he can live with new hope. Heard this week that somebody I know very well has lost their job. I'm sure many of you are in that situation or your job's under pressure. 
And if you're facing that, you can face it with hope because he lives. Some of you are in marriage difficulties and situations and you don't know how it's going to turn out and I don't know how it's going to turn out. But you can face it with hope because he lives. Some of you are facing other challenges with your family, with your friends, with whatever. But you can face it with hope because he lives. Isn't that good news? Let me read this to you and then we'll worship and sing and do some other stuff. This is written by a guy called Charles Swindley. puts it into words in a better way than I can. It says this, When we are trapped in a tunnel of misery, hope points to the light at the end. When we are overworked and exhausted, hope gives us fresh energy. When we are discouraged, hope lifts our spirits. When we are tempted to quit, hope keeps us going. When we lose our way and confusion blurs the destination, hope dulls the edge of panic. When we struggle with a crippling disease or a lingering illness, hope brings reminder that God is still in control. When we find ourselves unemployed, hope tells us we still have a future. When we're forced to sit back and wait, hope gives us the patience to trust. When we feel rejected or abandoned, hope reminds us we're not alone. We will make it. And when we say our final farewell to someone we love, hope in the life beyond gets us through our grief. Because he lives. We can live. And I had a thought at the nine o'clock which just came to me and I want to say it again. Almost like, because he lives, we can. Why don't you say that with me? Because he lives, we can. And it's like we can, and you can fill in the blank. Because he lives, we can face this situation. Because he lives, we can go through this. Because he lives, we can know God even in the midst of our pain or our confusion. Because he lives, we can. If he didn't, we couldn't. But he does. So we can. Why don't we pray? Father, we want to thank you this morning that you're just an amazing God. And we ask you, Lord Jesus, in these final few minutes and moments of our time together, that God, as we do what Christians have done for 2,000 years, and uh, God, I I pray that, and as we stand with what Christians are doing all over this world uh, today in different situations, in big cathedrals and massive buildings and in small huts and homes and houses and in secret, some of them, and some of them deep in basements, some of them in mud huts. God, as people will be doing it in all kinds of different ways all over this world today, as we take communion, God, we identify with what you've done. We identify with what you are doing and we identify with what you are going to do. God, you've taken our sins, past, present and future. You've given us a new identity. Lord, you've given us your spirit and you've called us into a new mission to see this world transformed by the kingdom of God. And you've given us hope through the resurrection of Jesus. And so God, as we take and as we eat and drink today, as we worship you, God, I pray that there will be a shift that will come for many of us. And it may be this morning, folks, that as I encourage you, and you're gonna, I'm going to invite you to come out, actually, rather than us serve it to you, I'm going to invite you to come out. And let me just say a few things about that. If you don't want to do that, if you're perhaps you're not a Christian and you're not clear about that, that's absolutely fine. Stay where you are. But you are invited. All of you are invited to come and to eat and drink. And basically, it's just bread and uh, juice. That's all it is. And it speaks of the body and the blood of Jesus. It doesn't just speak about his death. It speaks about his resurrection as well. This is the payment. Resurrection is the receipt. It's done. Here's the proof. But as you come today, some of you might come and you're going to come with great confidence and great joy because life's fantastic for you. Brilliant. But for some of you, you're going to almost limp to the table this morning. You're going to almost drag yourself here. Because what you need more than anything else is you need a shift. You need God to remind you again that you've got a new identity. You see, you know it in your head. But what's happened is that even though it's been shifted... So often, the enemy has shifted it back. 
And you need to know that it's done once and for all. And so I want to invite you to come as well. Some of you, you need a new shift because you're bored or you're just looking up into the sky and you need God to wake you up and to get you involved in the mission of changing this world for His glory. And some of you, you need a shift because you need hope right now. And you don't know whether you can, but because He lives, you really can. So I want to encourage you and invite you to come. Why don't you this morning, wherever you are, just thank God that He lives, (laughs) that Jesus lives. Because because He lives, you can. Because He lives, you can. You can have a new identity and a new mission. You don't have to be bored and staring at screens and staring up at the sky. And you can face whatever you're facing with new hope. Why don't you thank Him this morning for that? God, what a great God you are. Just speak it out if you're able to do that. Just say, God, thank you that you rose for me. Thank you that you're alive. By your spirit, you live in me. And you know, if you're not a believer this morning, we'd love to talk to you about how you can be. It ain't going to make you perfect because we're not perfect. In fact, you may be better than us in loads of ways. That's fine. But we we know God and we know that God knows us. And when you have the risen Christ, I tell you what, you can face life in a completely different way. And we'd love to talk to you about that. I want to pray for you this morning. Father, I want to thank you for your incredible love for us. That you didn't just speak about it. God, you demonstrated it. You know, actions don't speak louder than words. Actions prove whether the words are true or not. And you prove that your words were true because you loved us so much that you gave us your only son. And he died horrendously. And that, all that stuff that was on us was shifted onto him. And then he rose again gloriously. And now, Lord, not only has the payment happened, but we've got the receipt. And so, Lord, we don't just have a gift card, but we can have the gift. And God, we thank you for that and we praise you for it today. And we say, Lord, in the light of that, God, because you live, we can live. And we can face whatever we're facing. We can move out of this place this week. We can go into our workplaces or wherever we are this week in our communities and our homes. And we're not staring at the sky aimlessly and bored, but God, we want to make a difference for you. So help us, I pray, and send us out in the power of the risen Christ and by His Spirit. And everyone said...